Well, good morning. As you can see, I am not Bob Vernon. I'm not even David Roper. Um, I thought about renting a police uniform and shaving my mustache and seeing if I could pull it off, since most of you have never seen Bob Vernon, but uh, Becky didn't think it would work. So, Actually, for those of you who have not heard, uh, Bob had to leave yesterday afternoon. Um, he received word that a judgment has been handed down against him in a $3.5 million lawsuit. So since we couldn't match that with our honorarium, he needed to head back. Obviously, his family is very upset, and his attorneys needed to speak to him today so they could start the appeal process uh, first thing tomorrow. And I'd like to, before we go on, just take a minute and pray for Bob and Esther. Um, now, it seems the enemy attacks the people that God places in, in positions where they, they can really have a, a positive influence and a positive impact on our society. So I'd just like to hold uh, Bob and Esther up in prayer before we do anything else. So let's pray. Lord, we praise you for these two, uh, for the impact that Bob has already had and it continues to have, for the ministry he had here uh, among our men yesterday the way he affected them with your spirit and with your truth. Lord, we ask for them, for their protection, that in the midst of this frightening and uh, somewhat overwhelming time, that you would be their courage, that you would give them the uh, ability to be strong and courageous, to know that you are in control, to trust you, and to be able to love those with whom they're involved their attorneys, even their opponents, to be able to demonstrate your love. Lord, uh, we ask that you would protect them, that you would reverse this decision, that the courts would not uh, uh, take undue advantage, that this would uh, actually lead to justice and what's right and what's true. So, Lord, we commit your servants to you and uh, pray for them in your name. Amen. So, we've got another 30 minutes or so to blow. Uh, who has something they want to say? Just kidding. I thought since uh, today's Mother's Day, and I love my mother, and I love the mother of my children, that we would talk about mothers. We'd look at a passage uh, from the Old Testament about a mother. I uh, hope those of you who are mothers are enjoying your day. You will pay for it next month on Father's Day. <laughs> How many mothers got breakfast in bed this morning? <laughs> that was quite a few. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> quite a few. In fact, uh, a lot more than the first hour. You don't have to tell me. I know what you got. You got this mound of scrambled eggs with every spice in your entire kitchen in it with a taste that you can't quite identify, but you can still taste, along with a couple of dark brown super crisp strips of bacon that turned to dust as you tried to pick them up, a couple of charred pieces of toast with hunks of butter smashed into them, a cup of orange juice with concentrate still at the bottom, all accompanied by the only rose that your rosebush ever tried to produce, stuck in a little vase. 
and your kids lined up around your bed watching you try to eat this. And I'll bet no matter how bad it tasted, you loved it. And even though it's going to be easier to move to a new house than it will be to clean that kitchen, you're glad they did it because they were saying, I love you. And whether you know it or not, the only way your kids know how to say, I love you, is by doing for you what you do for them. Because you are their model of love. The passage we're going to be looking at, I taught on uh, oh, about six years ago. At that time, I had uh, the first and third grade chapels have the kids write down uh, their essays on why my mom is the best. And they just wrote list after list, and I collected a big stack of these things. And I'd like to read a couple of their responses. I won't include their last name because that was, like I said, six years ago, and some of them are now here among us as teenagers, and they would be horrified if I were to mention their entire name here in public and what they wrote. But I'd like to read just a few of these things. Why my mom is the best. I love my mom so much. My mom is best because she cares about me, and she does things with me. She takes me out. She feeds me. She does not spoil me, and I'm glad she corrects me and does my homework with me. She gave me two brothers, and I love my mom so much that if my mom died, I would cry, but I would remember that I will soon see her again. My mom teaches me things. That's why my mom is the best. I love you. Love, Andrea. Another one. My mom is the best. My mom is the best because she feeds me. If my dad cooked, we would go hungry. His idea of a meal is a Butterfinger and a Coke. My mom also does the wash. I love her a lot. She does so many things that it would take me an hour to name them all. Kyle. And another one. Why my mom is the best. And Joel actually listed several pages, just one thing after the other. And I don't want to read them all. Let me just read a few of them. She makes my food. She washes my clothes. She buys my clothes. She takes me golfing. She is nice. She helped me to learn life. She loves the family. She taught me about the Lord. She helps me know friends. She helped me talk. She helped me understand school and helped me understand sports. She helped me with my brothers. She helped me with my sister. She helped me sing. She makes my birthdays fun. She buys me birthday presents. She buys my shoes. Now listen to that. Did you hear what Joel was really saying? He says, She helped me learn life. She helps me know friends. She helps me understand school. She helped me with my brothers. See, Joel's mom helps him understand life. And moms, that is your your biggest, most important job. You are their interpreter to explain what they're seeing, what they're feeling. They're feeling things they don't even know what they're feeling or why they're feeling, and they need you to to interpret for them, to explain to them. They need you to interpret yourself, to explain yourself and why people are the way they are and people do the things they do. See, your kids are always figuring it out. They're always piecing it together, always trying to understand it all. But without good data, without good input, they do it poorly. They begin to do it in a way that's hurtful, that somehow starts to take responsibility for all that's out there on themselves in a way that starts to, to damage their confidence and their, their, their self-image. They need you 
to interpret. I feel strongly that as our children grow, we should not try to entirely shield them from the painful things in life, for the, for the frightening thing, from the frightening things in life, even some of the unseemly things in life, because they're picking it up and they're starting to piece it together. And we need to help them to do that, to understand it in the context of God's great love, in the context of His power, in the context of what's right and wrong. And when we fail to do that, they, they try to do it without good data. And they become confused, and that confusion causes them to be brutalized by reality. So I think one of the greatest things a mom can do is to be her child's interpreter, to explain why people do what they do, to give them insight, and especially to teach them how much their God loves them. I will always be grateful to my mother. My strongest memories of childhood are her explaining to me why my brother just punched me in the eye. It's because he loves you, and he just doesn't know how to say it. Or, you know, when somebody's mean at, at school, she helped me see how much that person must be hurting inside to act that way. And I'll always be grateful for what she gave me, the ability to see beyond the superficial, to, to see beyond my reaction and to see what's really going on, to get insight into, into others, but also into myself. And especially the way she translated and interpreted God's love for me. See, mothers have an enormous influence, an enormous impact on lives. G. Campbell Morgan Sr. had four sons. All four of them grew up to be great preachers. In fact, the oldest, G. Campbell Morgan Jr., uh, is one of the greatest preachers in the, of the 20th century. And one time at a family reunion when all four sons were together, a reporter came and asked them, which of the Campbells was the greatest preacher? Without hesitation, their unanimous answer was, Mom. And in Scripture, every time we have the background of, of one of the great people of Scripture, their childhood uh, discussed, the focus is on the mother. You know, we don't have a lot of their childhoods. Uh, usually we meet them as adults. But when we do, the focus is on the mother. You know, take Moses, for instance. Jacobed, his mother, was the one that hid him and protected his life. And then even after he was uh, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, she went and was his nursemaid and nurtured him and taught him who he was and what his heritage was. You know, how many people, other than a few Sunday school teachers here, even know who Moses' father was? What's his name? It was Amram, by the way. Or David. We don't know his mother's name, but in Psalm 86, he refers to her as the handmaid of the Lord, God's servant. We look at uh, David's father, and he was pretty shaky. He didn't treat David real well a lot of the time. But his mother obviously loved God. She was his servant. She was dedicated to God. The, uh, ma the handmaid of the Lord is also the, the name that, that Mary uses for herself when the angel visits her and tells her what's going to happen, that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. And even though her child was perfect, he still needed somebody to explain, to interpret for him, and to show him what was going on around him. In the New Testament, like Pat mentioned, Timothy, uh, both his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois are, are named as having the predominant influence on his spiritual life. 
Well, like I said, what I want to do this morning is take a look at another one of the mothers, of one of the great people of Scripture, Hannah, the mother of Samuel. So turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, Samuel was a pivotal person in the history of Israel. Samuel was the last of the judges who ruled Israel, and he was the first of the prophets that brought the word of God to Israel. See, he was both a judge and a prophet and was unique because he was the transition, the pivotal person. He came at a time when Israel was oppressed on every side by their neighbors. He came at a time when Israel was confused and corrupt spiritually. And he oversaw the liberation of Israel. He oversaw the spiritual renewal of Israel. And then finally, he ushered in the kingdom. He was the one who anointed David. So let's just uh, read through this passage and take a close look at his mother, Hannah. Now there was a certain man, starting with verse 1, there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his son's name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zeph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all of her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Now, Canna was actually a Levite from the, the area of the Ephraimites. And sometime in the past, either he or his, his father, somebody had moved down from there to Ramah. Ramah was about five miles north of Jerusalem, about 20 miles uh, southwest of Shiloh. This guy, um, Alcana, had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Hannah, or Peninnah had children. Hannah did not. Now, some people speculate that uh, Hannah was his first wife, and when she was unable to have children, he married Peninnah in order to have an heir, in order to have children. Because back in those days, in that society, it was absolutely critical that a male heir be produced in order to to receive the inheritance and to keep that inheritance within the tribe, to keep it within the family line. And so all the laws, the customs, the practices of Israel really did revolve around that priority. But regardless of, of how he got two wives, he had two wives. One had children, and the other didn't. Every year, Elkanah would pack up his whole family, and they would walk the 20 miles to Shiloh to the, the tabernacle there to worship and to offer sacrifices. Now, the tabernacle was a portable temple that was set up permanently in Shiloh. Now, the, the, the temple in Jerusalem hadn't been built because at this time, Jerusalem was still a Jebusite city. It wasn't until another 50 or 60 years later that David conquered Jerusalem and made it the capital. And another 50 years after that, that um, Solomon built the temple. So it was about 100 years before the building of the temple. 
just for your perspective, at the same time what was going on in Israel over to the east was Samson had begun to beat up on Philistines. That was going on the same time that our story is happening. That That's where we are in, in the history of Israel. So anyway, every year, uh, Elkanah and his whole family would hike over to Shiloh and offer sacrifices. What they would do when they offered sacrifices, they would, they would take their sacrifice, whether it was a bull or several goats, and they would kill it. And then they'd offer it, and the priests would take a portion for themselves, for their own meals. A portion of it would be burnt entirely as a burnt offering to God, and the rest of it would be given back to the family for a, a, a feast, a worship feast as a family. And when this would happen, Elkanah would take a portion for his wife Peninnah, give it to her, and then he'd give her a portion for each of her children, her sons and her daughters. Then he'd go to Hannah, and he'd give her two portions. He says because he loved her. I think it was because he wanted to to try to make things easier, better for her. What he was basically saying was, I love you as much as if you had a son. But it still hurt. I mean, it was still the reminder that she didn't. The contrast was still there. And her fellow wife made sure she noticed the contrast. She would bring it up. She would somehow, we don't know what she said, but somehow she'd get her digs in. Maybe she said, you know, I sure hope I can carry all of this food for all of my kids. Now, it would have been hard enough for Hannah just to have this reminder year after year that she was unable to have children. But to have someone in her family to treat her so insensitively and so cruelly must have just seemed like, like more than she could bear. And, you know, it's, it must have seemed horribly unfair that here's this heartless, cruel Pinina getting pregnant and having babies, and she's not. I don't know if you've never been through uh, something like this, something similar, whether you can understand the depth of her pain. You know, for many women, uh, they get pregnant very easily. Uh, They can schedule it and get pregnant on the day they want to and, and have as many children as they want. And it's hard to identify with those who are unable to get pregnant or unable to sustain a pregnancy to full term. In the United States, 15% of couples of childbearing age are unable to have children. That's 15%. So in a, in a room this size, this number of people, there are probably 40, maybe 50 couples who cannot have children. And you've got to realize that those people are hurting. There's a loss in their lives. And I know none of you would ever intentionally add to that pain. But how much are we doing to lessen it. How sensitive are we to, to comforting that pain? You know, there's, you'd be surprised in, in a church like this, any church, the kind of the subtle but enormous pressure to have children, the little questions, the, the, the teasing, the, the, the sense that this is a family-oriented society, a family-oriented congregation, and that if you're not a real family, you're kind of left out. Yeah, I was oblivious to that kind of pressure, that kind of hurt, until Becky and I found out that we were unable to have children. And then I started to see how widespread it was and, and how much it hurt. And also realized that, that the pain, the pressure, comes from very well-meaning people, people who have had children or who have children and love it and want to share that joy, that delight, that enjoyment with others. And that's good. That's healthy. That's that's loving and generous. But we also need to realize 
how much pain that can cause. We often don't realize that, but let's do. Let's, let's from here on realize that pain and be sensitive, be careful. Do not take it lightly because it's very heavy for those who are going through it. I think we need to realize that God has different plans for different couples. For some, it's that they will raise foster children. Others, they will adopt like Becky and I have been blessed with. Others will remain childless so that they are more free to pursue God and His kingdom without distraction. See, God is in charge of childbearing, of fertility. And God is good. And He's got a different good plan for each couple. While I'm at it, let me put in a plug for singles as well. You know, again, we so often, perhaps inadvertently, but so consistently make them feel left out, less than a full part of our congregation, of our friendships, of our, of our, 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 uh, our groupings. We often remind them of their singleness in ways that cause hurt, cause them to feel inferior. I think the bottom line is that if you're married, enjoy it. God has given you something wonderful. And and it's not even wrong to want that for other people. But be sensitive. Be aware of others' pain who are in different circumstances. If you have children, enjoy them. Delight in them. And again, it's not wrong to want others to enjoy this and to want this blessing. They are a gift from God. But again, we need to be sensitive to the pain of others. And go out of our way to be a comfort and an encouragement and to include them in Beloved, let us love one another. Well, back to our uh, story. So here's Hannah. She's really hurting, and uh, her fellow wife stirs it up. That's what the word irritate in verse 6 literally means. She stirs it up over and over. Every year, Akana and the family head for Shiloh, and every year the family vacation is ruined. So here comes Mr. Sensitive. I like Elkanah. I can identify with him. He's tired of this. He's annoyed. He thinks, man, we should get over this. We should move on. Listen to what he says there in in verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? You see, the word sad can also be translated evil or or unhealthy. He says, there's something wrong here. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like I said, he's frustrated. he, He even takes it somewhat personally. He says, come on. You're blowing it. Move on. Shake it off. Isn't that enough? Doesn't that count for anything? Isn't that good enough for you? You know, obviously this is what Hannah needed to hear. You know, I read this and I hear myself. And I think any of you who are husbands can hear yourself here. You know, we love our wives, but sometimes when there's something going on, some deep hurt that we don't quite understand, we feel inadequate. We feel like somehow it's an offense against us. We, we get frustrated. We get annoyed. And we say, come on, let's move on. Do we have to go over this over and over and over again? Just let's move on. And we take it as a personal affront. 
somehow a, a critique of our adequacy in loving them. Maybe we even say, there's, there's something wrong here. This is evil. This is unhealthy. And we start thinking, well, they're just trying to cop out of life. Or they're just trying to manipulate us into giving them more affirmations. And we begin to resent them. Well, husbands, men, let me encourage you right now to get something into your head. Your wife is different than you. And different does not mean inferior. Different does not mean wrong. And when you're struggling to understand, and you can't identify, you can't understand what she's feeling, what she's going through, don't give up. Don't just write it off. Don't don't begin to take it as a personal insult, a personal affront. See, God has given you your wife to learn from. So learn from her. Listen to her over and over and over again. Try to help her understand. Try to help her find answers. But don't resent her when your answers don't work. Together, take it to God and see what He will teach you. Because that's His design, to teach you things you never could have understood. Teach you beyond your own feelings, your own way of thinking. To understand more than you ever could any other way. Let Him teach you. And women, let me apologize for us men. We will try to get better at listening, at understanding. We will try to get better at at loving you. But don't count on us. (laughs) We will fail you. We will not give you the support that you need. You see, nobody, no person, no human being can give any of us the support that we ultimately need when we're going through some serious pain. Whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're, you're single or married, whether you're childless or you've got kids hanging all over you, no person can give you the kind of support that you need, that your heart longs for. Take a look at Hannah. See where she went. Verse 9. Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thy maidservant and remember me and not forget thy maidservant, but will, but will give thy maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And a razor shall never come on his head. See, she goes right where she should go. She goes to the Lord. And she pours her hurt and her pain out to him. And in her attempts to express her, her hurt, how deep it is, she doesn't really even have the right ways to articulate it. She keeps saying the same thing over in different ways. She says, look at me, remember me, don't forget me. See, she feels like God isn't paying attention. He's not keeping his mind on the game. So she's saying, God, hear me. Please, God, somebody's got to hear me. And then she makes a vow to the Lord. She says, you give me a son, and I'll give him back to you, and I'll never cut his hair. Now, that last part isn't uh, because God has something against barbers or some, has a thing for long hair. That's part of a Nazarite vow. And what a Nazarite was somebody who was dedicated specifically, especially to God, to be uniquely set aside from the other pursuits of life to, to seek Him and to be His, his vessel. 
There were three parts of a Nazarite vow. There was, first of all, they couldn't touch any alcohol. They couldn't drink uh, strong drink liquor or wine. In fact, they couldn't even have grapes or, or raisins, anything to do that might be uh, related to wine. They couldn't be around a dead body. And they couldn't cut their hair. So what she's saying basically is, you give me a son and I'll give him back to you and he'll be specifically and especially dedicated to you. That sounds like she's bargaining with God. She's trying to make a deal with him. Does that work? I mean, is that right? Do we, can we bargain with God? I can give you, uh, I think, a fairly coherent argument how that is perhaps a logical contradiction of our understanding of the sovereignty of God and not necessarily the best of practices, but it worked. You know, I have a, a dear friend who, as a younger Christian, had three miscarriages. And she was reading through scriptures. She came across this passage and she adopted that prayer for her own. She began to pray that, and she credits that prayer with the birth of her oldest son. You see, it worked. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not magic. It's not that if you say this prayer this way, it's going to work. But see, God hears prayer. And we, in our theological sophistication, don't pray. We somehow think it's inappropriate to really pour our hearts out to God, that it's, that it's spiritually naive to tell Him exactly what we feel and exactly what we want. And be that vulnerable, that open with God. But as a result, we don't see God do things. We live often impoverished, empty, sometimes sterile lives. Because we're not willing to be that vulnerable to God. But Hannah wasn't ashamed to be open with God. But look what happens next. Verse 12. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart only. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have not drunk wine or strong drink, but I poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, she was really hurting. She was crying. She was all disheveled. She probably looked a mess. And she's come before God, and she's just overwhelmed. And Eli's looking at her, and he sees her lips moving, and she sees the state she's in, and he thinks, this woman's drunk. He jumps to the conclusion that she's drunk, so then he jumps all over her. You know, this poor woman, here she is, hurting. Nobody understands. Her husband doesn't understand. God doesn't seem to be paying attention, and now she's got this priest on her case. We who um, supposedly... No God can be so cruel, so quick to jump to conclusions, so quick to pass judgment on people without even hearing what's going on in their life. We see a young person who's drowning in, in, in peer pressure, struggling to gain an identity, making mistakes, and we climb all over them. Or we see a man or a woman in a, in a joyless, hard marriage, 
And we're quick to criticize their attitudes and their behavior. We see a, a divorcee trying to relearn how to relate to the opposite sex, and we watch like hawks to see any slip. You see, we do need to give people truth. We do need to give them the Word of God, because truth frees. But we also need to listen. We also need to care. We can't jump to conclusions. Jumping to conclusions is the quickest way to make a fool out of yourself. I had a friend who was telling me he was driving down the freeway. A car came up behind him, started honking, pulled up next to him, and so he wasn't going to take this off anybody. He rolls his window down, he's screaming and giving the guy hand signs, and finally he makes eye contact, and he realizes the guy's pointing back to his gas tank, and his gas cap was off, and there's gas spilling out. You know? What a fool he felt. I hear this guy's trying to help him, and he's screaming at the guy. I remember one time our family was downtown in a, uh, a, a large city, kind of on a seedy part of town, and we were lost. So we pulled up to this building. It was kind of a broken-down old building, and there was a phone booth in front of it. We were going to use the phone. And as we pulled up to the curb, an old man, all dirty and kind of rough-looking, came out and started trying to open the car door. And we flipped out. <laughs> we locked all the doors. We started screaming and yelling and sped off. And looking out the back, I could see this old man with a white cane in his hand, wondering what had happened to the taxi cab that he thought had just come to pick him up. And I feel about about this big. Proverbs fourteen twenty nine says, He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick tempered exalts folly. See, Eli jumped to a conclusion. And Hannah responded and said, No, please don't think that about me. I'm not drunk. I'm pouring my heart out to the Lord. Eli felt like a fool. And so he blesses her to try to make up for his folly. It says there in verse 17, Go in peace, and may the Lord of Israel grant your petition that you've asked of him. Now this really isn't a promise that it'll happen, but Hannah takes it that way. And from this point on, Hannah knows that God is paying attention. And from this point on, she puts her sadness away. She starts to eat. She's confident that God has heard her. Now notice, her distress is not relieved by her pregnancy. Her distress is relieved by her confidence that God has heard her. That He will take care of her. That He's paying attention and she trusts Him. The story goes on, verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, because, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. She named him Samuel, which, by the way, does not mean asked of the Lord. What it means is God hears. Shamuel. God hears. See, that's why she named him. God has heard her. God has paid attention. God's tracking with what's going on. She asked and God heard. In verse 21, then the man, Elkanah, went up with all his household to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice 
and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with a three-year-old bull, and one ephah of flour, and a jug of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. So the next time that the family goes back to Shiloh, Hannah doesn't go with them. You see, she's already made up her mind. She's already determined she's going to keep her word to God. She's going to keep her word. And she doesn't want to take him with her until she can do that. And he's not weaned yet. He wasn't old enough. In those days, they nursed a little longer than we're used to. Uh, they usually nursed a child till he was three or four. And so the next year, when Samuel was four, maybe five, she takes a bull and some other sacrifices, goes to Shiloh and presents her son to Eli. What she says there to Eli, I think is kind of interesting, verse 26 and 27. She said, O my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition which I asked of him. See, she says to Eli, I'm the lady you thought was drunk. See, this is what I was praying for, and God gave him to me. Then verse 28 is kind of a play on words. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, the word dedicated, in your NASB, in your margin notes, it'll say, could be translated loan or lent him to the Lord. That's, that's really not what's going on. She didn't loan him to the Lord. What the word literally actually means is asked of. See, I have made him asked of by the Lord. When somebody asks you for something, you loan it to him. That's where the derived meaning of to loan. But she didn't loan her boy to the Lord. What she's saying is that I asked the Lord for him, and he gave him to me. Now the Lord is asking for him back, and I'm going to give, it to him, give him to him. So she leaves her boy there with, with Eli. You know, I don't like to be gone from my daughters for a week. Here she is with her only son, a four-year-old boy. She's going to leave him with Eli. That must have been horribly, horribly hard. That must have been painful. And and Eli wasn't the best of fathers. These two sons that are mentioned back up in verse 3, they were notorious scoundrels. They would use their position as priests to exploit people and to rip them off. And now she's going to leave her boy with this man and his sons. How could she do that? Well, she trusted God. She knew that God was paying attention. She knew that God was good. She knew that God would take care of Samuel. If he wasn't going to take care of him, he never would have asked for him. She trusted God that entirely. She knew God that well. And what you see, starting in the next chapter, is she doesn't say, God, you're asking too much. She doesn't submerge herself into self-pity. 
In fact, she begins to exalt and to praise. In chapter 2, it starts off, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. Take a look sometime at the first 11 verses of chapter 2 and just see how well this woman knew her God. Well, what's the point of this? Uh, Pat Blewett, who's our children's minister, wanted me to make sure and clarify the point. He wants you mothers of two-year-olds to know that we don't want 20 or 32-year-olds left in the lobby this week. Take them home with you. (laughs) But we do want you to give your children to God. Don't give them to anything else. You want what's best for them. And what is best for them, that best is that they belong to God. Don't focus your concern that they be popular. Don't focus your concern that they uh, be healthy. Don't focus your concern that they do well in school so they can get a good job when they grow up. Or or, or don't focus your concern that they have a, a good family when they grow up. See, Hannah learned that fulfillment doesn't come from the good things that God gives not even from children themselves. Fulfillment comes from God Himself. And let that be in your heart. And then let your children see your heart. Realize that they are gifts from the Lord, that they really do belong to Him. And give them back to Him. If you never have stopped and just said to the Lord, God, I trust you. I give them to you. I release them to you. I trust you that much. And then let him be their God. He still will use you like uh, Pharaoh's daughter used Jochebed as, as the nursemaid, as the one who nurtured and trained and taught. But they are his. And you can trust them to him. No matter what happens... They are His, and He takes care of His own. No matter what fear, no matter what horrible reality, illness, accident, rebellion, you can trust God because they are His loved children. Finally, let's all learn from Hannah what to do with our pain. He hears, no matter where your pain is coming from, No matter what your pain is, whether it's because you're childless or you're in a joyless marriage or you long for a spouse or whether your pain's because somehow your your job security has suddenly evaporated or somebody you love is dying or, or going through some horrible destruction because of their own foolishness or confusion. Whatever your pain, he hears. Samuel, Shamuel, God hears. Let's pray. God, I do pray for each mother here. I praise you for them. Ask that you would give them wisdom and insight as they cling to you. That they would have freedom to turn their children to you to trust you that radically. And that they would then find their 
support their fulfillment in you even as they are learning together with their husbands if they have one. Lord, uh, we just praise you for this model that Hannah has given to us as she was misunderstood, as she was falsely accused, how she clung to you and kept pouring her heart out to you. And Lord, we all want to learn from this godly woman. We all want to have that kind of of faith where we trust you enough to really tell you what we feel, to really tell you what we want, to really be vulnerable before you, to see your power released in our lives, to see your goodness. We want to know you as well as she knows you. So, Lord, we turn to you knowing that you are the God who does hear us, that you are paying attention, even when at times it doesn't feel that way. Lord, just uh, praise you for your word, the instruction we gain from it. In your name we pray. Amen.